Let us pray. Gracious, loving Father in heaven, thank you for covering us, covering our lives, covering our thoughts, covering our imaginations, covering us and sheltering us in the times of challenges and difficulties, in the times of our personal storms. But Lord, this morning we ask for you to speak to us, for you to guide us through your word, for us to find strength as we navigate the blueprint of deliverance. And may your Holy Spirit come and your holy angels abide in this place to lead us into your presence, we ask. In Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Just my imagination. It's a short scripture, but it's a powerful one. And we go to the book of Proverbs, chapter 23 and verse 7. I've only chosen the beginning part of it because it takes our minds in the direction that I'm asking the Lord to lead us today. Understanding our hearts, understanding our thoughts, understanding that how we think has a major role to play in who we become. It's a very short scripture. Why don't we read it together? Proverbs 23, verse 7 is on the screen, and I'd like to hear you raise your voices this morning as we read God's word. Together, here it is. For as he thinks in his heart, so is he. To illustrate the power of the imagination, come with me to my past. Come with me to the days when I was a disc jockey in New York City, growing up in a city encapsulated in music and rhythms of all different kinds. There was a song written by a group called The Temptations that every now and then we get pulled back into the tunes of our past. Isn't that right? Every now and then we hear songs that remind us of where we've come from. A few weeks ago, as I was asking the Lord, what should we talk about when it comes to our Wednesday night Bible studies? And, and Karen and those of you that have been on it, you might remember that topic very well. But I thought it was amazing that this song was written by a group called The Temptations and the lyrics were so synonymous to what we're talking about this morning. Listen carefully. The songwriter wrote these lyrics that are just amazing. Speaks about a man who has a desire and he's looking forward to the day of spending his, his pulsating heart with the woman of his dreams. But until that day comes, he's just in a beautiful way thinking about her, longing for that day. And he writes, each day through my window, I watch her as she passes by. I say to myself, you're such a lucky guy. To have a girl like her is truly a dream come true. Out of all the fellas in the world, she belongs to me. And the second verse. He says, soon we'll be married and raise a family. Oh, yeah. In a cozy little home out in the country with two children, maybe three. I tell you, I 
can visualize it all. This couldn't be a dream, for it is too real for all it seems. But the tagline says, but it was just my imagination running away with me. It was just my imagination running away with me. Did you get it? The woman that he looked forward to being with did not exist. She was just a figment of his imagination. Apart from the tagline, you would probably ask yourself the question, what kind of woman was he? But she was a woman with no dimensions, no existence, no reality. She existed only in his imagination. So this morning, come with me to the most amazing arena on the earth. The place of the greatest victories and the greatest defeats. The place of amazing beginnings and tragic endings. The place where success motivates us and failure pursues us. It is the place where the future is happiness, but it comes before our past. It is where mountains come down and walls go up. It is where we love and hate at the very same time. When we think about our imagination, some of us are beaten up by thoughts and and imaginations that don't have any arms. Some of us are beaten up by the thoughts and imaginations that don't have any arms. And many of us are incarcerated by what we think and by what we imagine. Others spend their days dodging the results of their imaginations and their thoughts. It doesn't really exist, only in their thinking. And many people waste their lives at the intersection of I thought and I imagine. I think that's what's going to happen. I think that is what's coming. But one writer points it this way, a doctor of psychology, he says, the ability to think and imagine permeates our entire existence. I thank God for the ability to think and to imagine. And many of the things we have today would not exist unless somebody had the ability to think about them and imagine them. Our imagination influences everything we do, everything we think about, everything that is created. Our thoughts lead to elaborate theories and indispensable inventions. Think about it. If somebody didn't think about it, we wouldn't have an iPad. If somebody did not imagine it, we wouldn't have an iPhone or an Android phone, or we wouldn't have many of the inventions that surround us today. So the the mind and the thoughts and the imaginations are not a bad thing, but our thoughts and imaginations are the catalyst of our dreams, the doorway that shapes our intellect and the ticket to our creativity or lack thereof. So today, what I want to do, and I'm going to ask for you to not imagine anything else but the sermon so that you won't be imagining that you're somewhere else and that you won't be thinking about what's going to happen this afternoon or this evening, but that you'll lock your imaginations and your thoughts right here. Somebody ought to say amen. We are going to address the phantoms that are chasing you And the things that are not really there, except in your imagination. We're going to look back on how to gain the victories over thoughts and imaginations that are pursuing us that really don't exist. 
And when you think about how powerful thoughts and imaginations are, they can be our greatest assets or our worst liability. I remember growing up and doing something wrong. My imagination beat me up long before Papa gave me a spanking. I thought about it. I anticipated it. I felt it. I experienced it. It was all a part of my being. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Our thoughts and imaginations cause us to go to work with an intrepid feeling. When our names are called, I know of someone that uh, once got a phone call from uh, their supervisor, and they said, oh, I'm in trouble now. And I thought, why would you imagine that? They said, what other reason would my supervisor call me? Thoughts and imaginations. The place where walls go up, the walls come down. And when you think about how powerful the thoughts and imaginations are, we need only to look back at a world that's gone by, at a world that no longer exists, except in our thoughts and in the pages of history. Go with me to Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5, and let us begin to build on the understanding of the power of thoughts and imaginations, the greatest access, or our worst liabilities. When you begin to analyze and look back at the world of Noah's day, notice the commentary in scripture about that society. Genesis chapter six and verse five, and we read the following words. And I'm reading from the King James version because it reads it or prints it the way that I want to communicate it. Bible says, and God saw that the wickedness of man was what? Great in the earth. And that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil, how often? Continually. Now think about it. The scripture is saying it's not what the antediluvians did, but it's what they imagined and what they thought. In other words... Their thoughts became their actions. Their actions became their habits. Their habits became their character, and their character shaped their destiny. The downfall of the antediluvian world began with their thoughts and their imaginations. And let me put a pin in that because let me tell you something. The devil is seeking to do the very same thing today. Why do you think we are bombarded with social media? Mm -hmm. Why do you think when one social media platform begins to wear out, the devil comes up with another one? Some of you are old enough to remember MySpace. Can I get an amen? When that first came out, it was the craze of craze. Everybody wanted to be on MySpace. I wasn't on MySpace. I thought it was a kiddie platform. People got excited about it. And I'm not exactly sure of the trajectory, but I, get it, I guess it eventually began to move till it got to Facebook, then it got to Instagram, then it got to, come on, Snapchat, then it got to Twitter, now we're down at TikTok. I don't know if there's any after that, but I want you to notice a pattern. The devil is cleverly and artfully 
creating things, creating platforms, creating devices that don't give us the freedom to think for ourselves. He wants us to think like the folk on their postings. I've heard people that go into an emotional down spiral when they read something on Facebook. You know what I do? I don't really care. Because what people think or don't think about me on Facebook is not my concern. Somebody, oh, we forgot Messenger, by the way. We forgot Messenger. Somebody messaged me this week. I don't look at that, but it pops up. Somebody messaged me this week and said, I no longer like your sermons. You know what I said? I don't care. Now, I didn't tell him that, but I told my wife, I don't really care. I don't preach for popularity anymore. Amen, somebody. Sermons are not to be graded like speeches. I don't get an A or a D or a C. I don't really care about that. As long as I'm proclaiming what's in God's word, I don't really care about the opinions. Can you imagine somebody saying to Elijah, I don't like your sermons anymore. Or John the Baptist, I don't like what you said. God never called us to allow what the proclamation of his word. He calls us to proclaim his word faithfully. But we're looking at a society that before the manifestation of a good act or an evil act, it begins in the thoughts. We think about it. We imagine it. We feed our thoughts. We nurture our, admin, our imaginations. We, we nurture our the things that we think about, the things that we focus on. And long before we get to the performance of an act, it's all in our imagination. It's feeding on us. We sense it. We feel it. We taste it. We see ourselves in the middle of it. I remember growing up in New York City. One night, my friend and I were watching uh, television. It was about a quarter to midnight. And it was back when a 13-inch television was huge. Anybody remember that? Sony Trinitron. Some of you young folk don't even know what that is. 13-inch Sony Trinitron. Totally analog. He had a 13-inch Sony Trinitron and a, and a Burger King, I think McDonald, whatever, commercial came on a quarter to 12. And you know how they do it? They drop the ketchup at the right angle. And then all you hear is two all beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onion on a sesame seed. And you smell it. And your, your taste buds start to salivate. <laughs> and, and we looked at each other right away and said, Let's go get one. Quarter to midnight. Now, there was not a McDonald's for 12 miles of where we lived. Here we are driving all over Brooklyn looking for a McDonald's. We didn't stop till we found one. You know why? Because we thought about it. We imagined it. We tasted it. We felt ourselves chewing it. And we knew we couldn't go to bed without it. But it began right here, then it went right here. Brethren, you gotta, you got to lock in on this because that's exactly what's happening today. 
We're living in a society where we are being massaged to forget God's word and to remember everything else around us. And our thoughts and our imaginations are no longer ours. One psychologist recently wrote, he said, if you want to become a person that thinks for yourself, the first thing you need to do is turn off any external stimuli. Anything that's telling you to think this way or do this way, and it's getting worse nowadays because you can't even have email without an ad popping up in your email. Have you noticed that? You look on Google, if you make the mistake and look, and look for a car, a car, an ad for a car shows up in your email. We are being, we are being hunted by social media giants. They want us to think that way. They want us to act on their whims and, and their desires and their impulses. And our imagination takes off. But I've discovered to get to the place where your imaginations are only evil continually, it requires a constant and consistent diet of thoughts that suggest evil. As one doctor said, thoughts don't just pop up. Imaginations don't just pop up. Something happens to activate them. Something takes place. And I know you've been there before. You might walk into a building feeling perfectly fine, and then your eyes lock in on somebody that's in the building, and your attitude change. Your heart begins to speed up. You begin to think about how they think about you or how you think about them. And the thing you fear the most is running into them. Or saying hello to them or them saying hello to you. And some people live long lives. I've, I've seen this play out itself in churches that I've pastored. I can tell when people are at odds with each other. You know, we have so many aisles. They'll come in on that aisle. And you'll come in on that aisle. And they'll watch what aisle you go out on and go out on another aisle. Cannot think together, cannot pray together, cannot sing together, cannot worship together. And they're planning on being in heaven with you. That's what you think is just your imagination. Because as we were reading this week, we are not going to wake up in the resurrection with different thoughts than we nurture right now. The thoughts we wake up with on resurrection morning are the thoughts that we nurture on our day-by-day -day basis. The things that we imagine and perpetrate in our lives are not going to change in the resurrection. Therefore, it is our responsibility, I'm going to say that again, it is our responsibility to begin to become active in shaping the way we think, the way we imagine, and the way we live. And my wife and I have, I tell you, about four or five years ago, we implemented in our lives some safeguards so that our thoughts can continually, more by more, become like the thoughts of God. If you, don't have a if you don't have a diet in your life, if there's not anything in your home that's, that's shaping your thoughts and molding your thoughts, you are inevitably becoming the thoughts and the imaginations of the person or the thing that you focus on the most. And Romans chapter 6 and verse 16 tells us what happens when that takes place. Look at Romans 6 and verse 16. 
The Apostle Paul says, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slave whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to what? Righteousness. I like to educate myself about things that I'm not fully aware of. And when I decided a little more than a week ago that this was going to be the sermon topic, I said, let me educate myself. Let me, let me listen to the professionals. Let me read some of the writings and the, and the findings of the professionals, the, the doctors, the psychologists, the neurosurgeons, people that deal with the human mind. And one, one uh, psychologist pointed out he was dealing with a gentleman that wanted to overcome a particular habit in his life. And in a conversation with this gentleman, he said, what is the thing that you want to overcome? And he mentioned what it was. I'm not going to mention it just for the sake of not putting anybody on the spot, if in fact that may be a challenge in your life. But he mentioned the thing that he wanted to overcome, that he wanted to gain victory over. And the doctor asked him, so what happens? He says, when I think about that thing, I focus that I need to overcome that. And the doctor said, the problem is you're focusing on the thing you need to overcome. But I can guarantee you that before you go down that path, there is a precursor to you beginning to turn in that direction. There is something that happens in your mind before you begin to think about that very thing. And it was just pointed out in Romans chapter 6 and verse 16. So let me go back to this verse and let me break it down in components so you can understand. Because he pointed out, no one makes a decision about what they are going to do unless they yield first. So until you yield, the sin has no power over you. Until you make a decision to yield to something, what you are imagining has no power to make you do anything until you first yield. Let's look at that again. And I'm going to bring out these points in specific details in four steps. Because the problem that we have when we try to overcome something, we focus on that very thing, but there's something that happens before that. Romans 6.16, once more. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slave whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? This, this, this psychologist pointed out that we don't just sin because we yield to the sin. Something happens first. Here's the first thing they recommend. The first thing we decide the first thing we do is decide to present ourselves to the thought. Let's break that down. A thought, is, a thought is swimming around because of the atmosphere that you're in. The thought is trying to find its way in. But if you look at the text, it says, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves? In other words, the thought is here, and you say to the thought, Thought, here I am. Let me use the classic illustration. Eve, before Eve got to the tree, the tree got to Eve. 
Before you got to the club, the club got to you. You opened the door to think about the club before you moved in the direction of the club. Before you perpetrated an action, the thought presented itself and you reciprocated by presenting yourself to the thought. And you said, thought, what do we do? So when we present ourselves, the next thing we do with that thought is we decide to obey the thought. When we obey the thought, the next thing we do is we embrace the thought because the thought continues to suggest to us that somehow if we embrace it on the other side of this prohibition, we're going to be wiser, we're going to be better off, and there's going to be some kind of benefit. And that's a lie. Because you knew that when Eve began to present herself to the thought, when the thought began to present itself to her, the Bible says, the tree was pleasant to the eyes, a tree desirable to make one wise. And she saw that it was also good for food. She began to look at the personal benefits of a wrong action rather than saying the wrong action is something that God has prohibited me from participating in Therefore, no matter how many benefits it claims I will gain from participating in it, I am just not going to present myself and have any conversation with the thought. Making it even clearer, as my, neuro, as my, neuro, as my uh, neurologist friend told me, and he brought out a powerful insight, he said, I deal with the human mind every day. And you know, we say that the first lie told in Scripture was, you will not surely die. But that's not true. The first lie told in Scripture was when Satan said to Eve, has God said that you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? So the devil suggested to Eve something that he knew God didn't say, and he put her in a position to want to defend God. So she decided that's not what God said. Like people might say to you, I heard that you said this. Right at that moment, right at that moment, you can decide to argue with that thought or dismiss that thought. I heard this is what you said. The devil did the very same thing. He presented to Eve a plausible thought, and he said, I know that based on her commitment to God, she is going to try to defend his honor. So she said, that's not what God said. And the moment that she embraced the thought he presented, the conversation began. And when the conversation begins, it's a slow, methodical seduction to a place that we know that we should not be. Look at the next step. The first thing we do is we decide to present ourselves to the thought. Then when we present ourselves, the next, things we, next thing we do is we decide to obey. And then we embrace and when we embrace the thought, what happened to Eve happens to us. We cross over from imagination to manifestation. Follow me carefully. She no longer had to imagine what the fruit felt like or what the fruit tasted like. What was in her imagination became her manifestation. It became as real as the thought that she wrestled with long before she got to the tree. Now, let me break it down even more. Imagination forms a mental picture. 
it develops a thought in our minds. But when we yield to the precursor or the activating thought, something begins to take over and there's a natural opening of a door and we begin to investigate an area that we know logically we shouldn't be there, but we go there because, and listen carefully, because we dismiss what God told us about what we are about to do. We dismiss God's prohibition and we think that we are in the place where we can handle disobedience without God's help. Let's look at that in Romans 1. Romans 1 talks about the activating factor. Romans 1 talks about the activating factor. He talks about the psychological disconnect when we ignore what God prohibits us from participating in. Romans 1 verse 21. Because that when they knew God, did the text say they knew God? When they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful. But look what happens. When we don't glorify God, when we don't acknowledge God for his blessings to us, notice what happens in the mind. But became vain in their what? imaginations, and their foolish hearts were what? Darkened. Let's not run past that too quickly. I can tell you from experience that when you ignore what God says don't do, the light goes out. Because the imagination is no longer on a godly plane. It dismissed what God said. And the thoughts are no longer now under God's direction. Your thoughts become vain. What does it mean, vain thoughts? It means your thoughts are not being led by godly principles, by God's word, by any of God's prohibitions. And so now you are putting yourself in the battle and your enemy or your opponent or your adversary is far more equipped to defeat you than you are without God's help. And when you think that you could handle it, what happens to your heart? Your foolish heart becomes what? Darkened. Because when we reject light, there's only one, else, one other thing that takes its place, and that is darkness. Now let's see what happens. Look at verse 28 of Romans 1. Why did this happen? You'll find this is the reason why I always encourage people to study God's word. Romans 1, verse 28, look at what happened. And even as they did not like to do what? Retain God in their knowledge. When God is not in your knowledge, there's only one other God that's there. When the supreme sinless God is not in our knowledge, there's only one other person on that throne. It's the adversary adversary of our souls. It's our arch enemy. It is the deceiver. When we don't like to retain God in our knowledge, look what happens. The foolish heart. Paul makes it even clearer what happens to the foolish heart. The Bible says God gave them over to what kind of mind? A debased mind. To do those things which are not fitting. Now, I'm not going to go into the things that are not fitting in the debased activity 
what I want to focus on today is what happens in the mind when our minds are not controlled by the presence of God. You see, a lot of times you've heard me say, do you have a prayer life? Do you have a study life? Do you have a devotional life? And if you think that's something that we could dismiss, if Jesus himself knew that his only answer to defeat the devil was, it is written, how can we defeat the devil without it is written? You can't do it. So the very, the very book that God has preserved, thank God for the preservation of his word. The very book that God has preserved to give us power in those moments when our imaginations and our thoughts are darkened because we don't like to retain God in our knowledge, meaning what we want to do and what God, God's word says clashes. And so we choose what we want to do over what God's word says, and then our minds become dark, our thoughts become vain, our hearts become foolish, and our minds become debased, and we are going down a path that began with thoughts and imaginations that were not guided by the molding influence of God's word. Well, how do I know that? Look at Hebrews 4 and verse 12. How do I know that? I can tell you, I, I, I tell you guys so much about me, you ought to start telling me stuff about you. I can tell you that the greater, the greater battles I've faced in my life came when I was not studying the Bible. Came when I was only using the Bible for sermon preparation rather than for personal growth. If the only reason that you use the Bible is to give a Bible study or to study your Sabbath school lesson or to get ready for some kind of activity, the Word of God should be more important to us than our daily meal. It should be the first thing of our day. We should fill our minds with the thoughts of God's Word. And here's the reason why. Here's the reason why. Look at Hebrews 4 and verse 12. The Bible says, For the Word of God is what? Living and what else? Powerful sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit. It's getting way down into the psyche of humanity and of joints and marrows. And don't miss this part. This is why the devil wants to keep us from studying God's word and is a discerner of the what? Thoughts and what else? intense of the heart. I said this before, but it fits right now. When we start reading God's word, God's word starts reading us. God's word is the guardrail. It's the yellow lines in our journey. It's the stop signs, the warning signs, the railroad crossing signs. Without the word of God, we might think we are free. But as one person said, if you think that red lights are bad, when the red lights stop working, the traffic stops moving. When the word of God is not moving in your life, your life is not going anywhere pleasant. But when you are reading God's word, notice what the Bible says. The word of God discerns your thoughts. It knows what you're thinking because it's living. Let me say that again. The word of God is alive. It's a living book. It's not just a book on pages printed by Thomas Nelson or by Remnant Publications. The Word of God is God-breathed. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now, let's follow that. If the Word of God, 
Sorry, let me rephrase that. Because the word of God is living, why would we put aside the living word of God to venture into paths that are strewn with nothing but thoughts that will lead us to death? A lot of people say, but I don't have time for Bible studies. My schedule is too busy. And the devil loves to hear that. Because if our schedule is too busy to protect ourselves, we are in trouble. Because the devil knows that if the word of God is not the shaping, molding influence of our thoughts and our imaginations, then Facebook is, and Twitter is, and Instagram is, and TikTok is, and all the other social media outlets are, or the radio, or the, or the earplugs that are in your ear pumping into your brain without your permission, thoughts and words that will inevitably move you in a direction when the devil calls on it. The things you watch, the movies that you bring into your home. The things that you thumb through on, on Instagram and, and on, on YouTube. One media giant said that more videos are, are uploaded to YouTube in one day than we can watch in 500 years if that's all we did. It's a spiral. But those are the things that are moving fast. The reason why so many people don't have a delight to study God's word is because God's word God does not reveal his truth in three seconds. Somebody once said, oh, you know, if you don't get their attention in 20 seconds, they're lost. No, I'm sorry. If God don't get their attention in 20 seconds, they're lost. So the devil says, if it's not fast, if it's not quick, it's not interesting. Let me tell you something, friends. You will never know interesting until you spend a good hour studying God's word. And what I've discovered, what I've discovered is the more time you spend studying God's word, the sweeter it gets. And then all of a sudden, the things that want to find itself in your home and in your mind and in your heart, all of a sudden start looking dark like it really is. My wife and I discovered that. We're in the book of Isaiah. We're loving it. We are loving it. We say, well, we only, we only have time to read one chapter. We get to the end of one chapter. Let's read another one. Got to find out what happened. And when we get to the end of the second one, she said, well, the next one's only 12 verses. Let's read that one. And before you know it, it's like, and we pause and we think about it. We talk about it. Let me say something to you husbands. You ought to sit down and read the word of God with your wife. Thank you. You ought to be the priest of your home. Not because it's convenient, but, but because if you don't have a wall against the outside world being built in your life, your, your heart is going to be darkened. Your imaginations are going to be vain. Because the word of God, which is a discerner of your thoughts and intentions, are not even there. It's like the gatekeeper, Tracy, has been fired. And anybody can come in. God's word is the gatekeeper. What happened to the antediluvians? You know what happened? They didn't like to retain God in their knowledge. You know what happened? When, when, when God's word is not shaping us, you know what happens? 
Evil no longer seems wicked. And good is no longer desirable. When we don't study God's word, when living right loses its appeal, a bewitching addiction takes you over. I look at some of these young folk and I say, how could they do that and have no conscience against it? I know what I'm talking about. I've been down that road. I've been down that road. And I'm speaking today on the, on the heels of knowing the deficit and the liability of going down the wrong road. Like somebody once said, you don't want to go down that road. I've been down there. You don't want to go down that road. I've been down there. Isaiah the prophet talks about that evil will no longer seem wicked and good will no longer seem desirable. Right living is going to lose its appeal and then this bewitching addiction takes over and then something happens in the psyche. That's why I was looking at the churches today. I like to look at different churches, not just our church, but I'm going to tell you every Christian church is going through a paradigm shift that is shocking to the eyes of God. Because the word of God is being minimized, music is being maximized. It's no longer a thus saith the Lord, but it's, I love you, Lord. I feel your presence. I'm glad you're here. I ain't reading your word. And we leave churches like a drug addict. And when the drug of the, the hype leaves our veins, we have no word of God to fall back on because we do not like to retain God in our knowledge. And if you don't think the devil takes advantage of that, you don't know who he is. Isaiah the prophet talked about a time. He talks about what happens when the word of God is not shaping our minds. Look at Isaiah 5. Not one you're familiar with, but I believe you'll not forget it today. Isaiah 5 and verse 20 and 21, he talks about what happens when the imagination and the thoughts are not guided by God. He says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. That's this world. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. That's this world. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. That's this world. You ever talk to a young person that you want to slap? Come on, excuse me, Lord. Some folk, you don't want to talk. You just want to say, wake up. I'm not abusive, but sometimes you want to say, I tell you, honey, that person needs a, that person needs the person I was raised with. Amen, old folk. Some of these, now don't do that, Johnny. Some of the stuff I see in Walmart. I'll leave it right there. But what Isaiah is saying is that when our thoughts are not shaped by God's word, that's, that to me is a, a striking example of what's happening in our world today. It is so deep that people are going to church and they can't even 
embrace and understand the simple things of God's word. I gave you the example yesterday. I've had other examples of people that thought this was so. I said, if you read God's word, you'll see it's not so. But ministers today are clever. They, they navigate around the things that may upset the intellect of the people that they want to seduce. And the things that are happening in our world today, not only in the world, but in the churches. Not only in the churches, but in our church. When you get to the place when you get to the place where immorality debased practices men with men women with women and then you say i need your support to let the Adventist church know that their position on these issues are wrong. Something is seriously wrong. They're calling evil good, and they're calling good evil. Then they say it's legal. You can't speak against it. Well, I'm sorry. I answer to an even higher authority. Why do you speak against it? Not to condemn the sinner, but to show the sinner that there is something called redemption and deliverance and forgiveness. And that today is becoming the, that's becoming the dinosaur in sermons today. People are waiting for their ships to come in rather than for the power of the Holy Spirit to come in. And when our discerning center, as Isaiah makes it, when our discerning center Yields to evil, our thoughts and imaginations take over. But it goes even deeper than that. Because what's happening today is we see the problem as the things around us and not what's taking place within us. Follow my lead. When our thoughts are not governed by God's word, we see sin as our enemy because it's easier to see sin as our enemy than to see our behavior as our enemy. We blame the substance. We blame the attraction or the habit. And we stop taking responsibility for our own choices. Follow me carefully. Do you think the devil made Eve sin? Do you think the devil, when, when Adam was confronted by his wife that he had no choice but to partake of the fruit? I don't believe that. So today, we do what Adam did. When we fall into transgression, you know what we say? Instead of saying, I have sinned, we say, the woman you gave me. When we blame others and we see others as our enemy, we no, we no longer examine ourselves. We blame others, and we take no responsibility for our behavior. Now, where did we get that from? From our parents. Adam said, the woman you gave me, and she said, the serpent beguiled me. 
And we say today, now this is a very powerful point. And I'm going to repeat it again. Sin is an enemy, but sin doesn't make you sin. You got to yield in order for that sin to be born. Sin doesn't, sin doesn't jump on you and say, you better do this. You got to decide. But when we say, you know, if it wasn't for that alcohol, if it wasn't for that cigarette, if it wasn't for that pornography, if it wasn't for that man, if it wasn't for that woman, I'd be all right. So we go through life blaming all of the external stimuli rather than saying, Lord, I need you to help me get in control of my actions and my thoughts. I need you to change me from the inside so that what happens around me is no longer the focus of my blame. And the reason I know that's the real, because Jesus walked the same earth that we're walking today. And the Bible says he was tempted in all points, just as we are ended with me yet without sin. He didn't even yield in thought. And as I get older, my wife and I have some great conversations. And I've gotten to the place in my walk with God that I'm not just, I'm no, I'm, I'm no longer in the theory. I'm in the, I'm in the practicum. I'm practicing. I'm, I'm, I'm looking. I'm examining. I'm looking at me. Who are you? What are you? What do you like? What do you dislike? What is easy for you to fall into? And what is difficult for you to do right? We don't examine ourselves. Everything and everybody will be the reason why we act and behave the way we do. And we'll never take personal responsibility for the choice that God has given us the power to make. And we'll say it's the drug, it's the substance, it's other people. I wouldn't be this way if it weren't for them. But look at Ezekiel 18 and verse 20. The Bible doesn't give us an out. The Bible does not give us an out. It holds us responsible. Look at Ezekiel 18 and verse 20. If we think it's the drug, the substance, and other people that are responsible for our behavior, we will not be saved. Ezekiel 18 verse 20. The Bible says the soul who sins shall die. But look what it opens up even wider. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon whom? Himself. In other words, whatever he does right, he's the only one to benefit from it. But it goes on further. And the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Each one is responsible for his or her own choices. And each one of us is responsible for our own destiny. You know why that gives me excitement? It's because not a one of you sitting here today could prevent me from being saved. Come on, say amen. There's not a person in this church that could prevent you from being saved if it is your choice. That's why David prayed the prayer he did. Let's look at the, let's look at the steps of deliverance. The first step of deliverance is taking personal responsibility. And this is something that is not common today. But David the psalmist makes it clear as to what the first step should be in our lives. Look at Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24. This is what we have to pray. We like to say, Lord, 
examine that person or examine him or them or they. But look what David prayed. Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24. Look what he said. What's the first two words? Say it one more time. Let, let that be your testimony. One more time. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. You see the personal responsibility there? Now, why is David praying that? Because David knew, David knew that the sin of his past was because he gave his thoughts and imaginations supremacy over making right choices. And the devil can't make you do anything, but he didn't stop there. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. But look at this. And see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. When I read that text, I had to put three questions together that I want to throw at you. What would God find if you invited him to examine your thoughts? What are you thinking right now? Wish that sermon would hurry up and end. He always make a noise. I wish so-and-so was here today to hear this sermon. <laughs> I hear it. Why do they have to come to church today? What would happen if we ask God to reveal to us our thoughts? What would happen? What would happen? How different would we be if God exposed us to our imaginations? How would we feel God invites you down to central booking? Put you in the interrogation room. And he looks you in your eye and says, so tell me, did you do it? And he knows your thoughts. He knows your imagination. He sees you calculating your next lie. And some of us are really good liars. But you know what we do? We lie to ourselves. The greater lie is not the lie we tell others, but the lie we tell ourselves, and that is this. I, there will be no negative impact to the way I live because eventually I'm going to get better. Let me make a point here. You don't get better one day if you practice, if you live a negligent life, and the study of God's word is a haphazard periodical activity in your life and you don't take time to study and pray if you live a haphazard life just just apply that to your job how good would our production be if we had a haphazard production department oh the colors really don't matter so what if people hear it or see it doesn't really make a difference the same tenacity we apply to the things of our lives we should apply to developing a spiritual character for the kingdom because we're not going to one day, uh, two weeks before Jesus comes, get righteous. Because <laughs> habit is a powerful thing. Does anybody know that? Habit is a powerful thing. Some people lie so long that they lie. <laughs> we knew somebody that said, man, if the mouth is moving, 
Eli. And some people can build a story and the more they talk, the greater the, 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 the event gets. And before you know it, it doesn't even exist except in their words and in their thoughts. David prayed that prayer because he knew that sin is powerful. But once you, one, what you need to recognize and what we need to recognize is sin cannot force our will. We've got to surrender our will. Made, made it even clearer. We are not victims of sin we are victims of our own wrong choices. But you know what? Folk don't like to take responsibility. Case in point, three people rob a bank, they'll all turn on each other. It was his idea. But look what James says. James 1, verse 14 and 15. We've got to take responsibility for our own actions. Don't blame anybody else. Because James says it's a slow, methodical process that will incarcerate you before you know it. James 1, verse 14, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires, that's his thoughts and imaginations, and enticed. In other words, instead of saying, I shouldn't be thinking that, I shouldn't be thinking that, I should not be imagining that, you ever had a thought that you want to push away, but you didn't? And later on, four or five hours later, or the next day, you wish you did. That's what James is talking about. Because look what he says in verse 15. Then when desire has conceived, what does it show you? It gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is what? Full grown, brings forth death. That means a lot of us didn't have to be there we didn't have to get there, but we didn't push the thought away when we were tempted. You want a bulletin? Temptation is not sin. Temptation is temptation. Yielding to it gives birth to sin. And the Bible doesn't let us off the hook. I was reading the other day. And I may have said this, but if I didn't, I'm going to repeat it anyway. We were reading Ellen White's writings, and she says, the same character that we go down into the grave with is the same character we're coming out of the grave with. She said, death does not change our character. It just solidifies us in the character that we have nurtured. And I looked at my wife square in the eye and I said, honey, we got to get this right before we go in the grave. Because I plan on coming out in the first resurrection. I don't want to go in at all. But if the Lord doesn't come in my lifetime, I want them at my funeral to say, he lived a godly life. And even if they don't, I want God to be able to say, he lived a godly life. But it all comes down to making the right choice. Look at Joshua 24, 15, just the beginning of it. Just the beginning of it. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose. What is that word? Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Now, let's get this. I'm, I'm going to transition now and come and bring it to a close. This is the part that really gets me. He says, choose you this day whom you will serve. There's nothing that irritates other folk more than when your children are not trained. 
It's amazing how people overlook their own unruly kids. But they don't like other people's unruly kids. Come on, say amen. And they see that kid acting up. Some mothers, you know, leave their switchblades in their purse. When they see other people's kids acting up, you can see the anger on their faces in the stores. But the thing that came to me as I was studying this, when we fail to train ourselves to make right choices, our thoughts and our imaginations have supremacy over us. Think about the whole word train. We train dogs, right? We train children. We train birds. We train animals. We train circus animals. We train monkeys. We train tigers. And depending on the level of difficulty, we keep on training them until they do what we want them to do. Now follow this. If animals can be trained to do what we want them to do, why don't we take responsibility for training ourselves? So you know what I'm doing now? I don't want to appear perfect. I got a ways to go. But I'm not going to get there because you trained me. I'm going to get there because I asked the Holy Spirit to train me. Jesus made a statement that we often miss. It's not a very common one, but it's powerful. When the disciples were worrying and concerned about who they were going to be, look at what Jesus hit them on the forehead with. He said to them in Luke 6 and verse 40, a disciple is not above his teacher. But everyone who is what? Perfectly trained. Let's say that again. Who is what? Perfectly trained will be like his teacher. Have you read that text before? Now watch what the Bible is saying. Who do we want to be like? Our teacher. How does that happen? Only if we are perfectly trained. Who's going to train you? You have got to take the responsibility of training yourself. When you read God's word, the Holy Spirit tells you, that's right, that's wrong, don't go there, go here, don't do that, do this, and then you train your mind. Look at this quotation in Testimonies for the Church. Powerful quotation. Volume 3, page 22. Look at this. The mind must be trained through daily tests to habits of fidelity, to a sense of the claims of right and duty above inclination and pleasure. That means don't go down the path that your natural crooked self want to go down. Train yourself. Discipline yourself. Minds thus trained do not waver between right and wrong as the reeds trembles in the wind. But, it goes on to say, as soon as matters come before them. When? As soon as matters come before them. That means as soon as you got to make a decision. Notice what else it says. As soon as matters come before them, they discern at once that principle is involved. And look what happens when they are trained. And they instinctively choose the right 
without longing, without long debating the matter. That means they don't stand there and argue between their feelings and what God's word says. And then she ends by saying they are loyal because they have trained themselves in habits of faithfulness and truth. Thank you. Thank you, Bob. I don't know how you know I was going there. When the three Hebrews stood in, that, in, in the front of Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar said, I'm going to heat the furnace seven times hotter. They didn't fear the furnace. They honored the Lord. If ex- the devil said, let me see what kind of external stimuli can get them to change their mind in areas of fidelity and obedience. And that story was recorded, Bob, to let us know that no amount of external threat or external stimuli can change the mind of a person who has taken personal responsibility to train his or her thoughts. Simply translated, you don't have to do it just because the temptation presents itself. You don't have to think it because the thought presents itself. You don't have to embrace it and build on it just because it's there. Can you imagine people going to Grand Canyon and because there's the cliff, they just jump off because it's there? No, absolutely not. We don't jump off because we know the, the disability or the liability. Once you are airborne, there's no turning back. The same thing is with sin. Sin is like a cavernous drop. If you don't discipline yourself, and I told my wife this when we went to Grand Canyon back in 2016. We were there in the Grand Canyon, and uh, I want to take a bit. She's backing up. I said, honey, stop. And she turned around to look, and the edge was like about six feet away. Well, I didn't know that I was that close. God wants us to turn around and face the direction of our footsteps. And know that the next step we take can mean the difference between failure and success. But as this quotation made it very, very clear, the reason why God has to chastise some of us is he has to show us that our bad choices need to be reexamined. And so God sometimes brings adversity so that he can begin to train us in the areas that we fail to train ourselves. That's why some people go through stuff they shouldn't even go through. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Some people go through trials and difficulty and hardship and pain that they never had to go through. But why did they go through it? Because they didn't train themselves to say yes or no. That's why the writer of Hebrews writes what he does in Hebrews 12 and verse 11. He said, when you fall down the path, you shouldn't go down. What does God do out of love for us? Notice what he does. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. When God sees you've gone down the wrong path, he's got to bend you back. But he continues, nevertheless, afterwards, it yield the peaceable fruit of what? Righteousness to those who are trained by it. Let me tell you, God has been training me every year that I've been in ministry. 
And I want to tell you, sometimes it's painful. But afterward, I say, thank God he loves me enough to put me back on the path, even though he has to chastise me to get me there. I'm not afraid of God's chastisement. But the problem with the battle of sin is we try to suppress the sin instead of trying to suppress our own choices. We, we try to suppress the, the activity rather than the thought that leads us to the activity. And the Bible does not let us off the hook. As I close, look at my last three scriptures. Isaiah 1 verse 16. The Bible makes it clear that we have a personal responsibility. We cannot just blame and say it was just my imagination. Look at the personal responsibility of character development. Wash yourselves. Isaiah 1 verse 16. Do what? Wash yourselves. That means if you have this hope, you purify yourself as God has already made you pure. In other words, your mother cleans the house and she says, keep it the way I've made it. When God cleans up our lives, we have to make choices that are continually daily washing us, keeping us clean in the righteous character of Christ. He says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes, cease to do evil. And what are the last four words? Learn to do good. The problem with too many Christians is they want a righteous life without training themselves or putting forth any effort to develop it. And here's the final part. The most pivotal part I left for last. The most pivotal part I left for last. Here's the most pivotal part. Go to Luke chapter 22. It was found in the life of Jesus. And by the way, our best example is Jesus. Jesus made this decision. He was confronted like we were. Confronted as we will be. But notice the decision he made. And before I read the passage, I want to tell you the verse in a moment. Before I read the passage, what I want to say is this. God will not remove the temptation. Listen to me carefully. God will not remove the temptation. Because God wants to see what choice you're going to make at that moment. God doesn't make the choice for us. He wants us to make the choice between his will and our will. He's not going to remove the temptation because he's saying you've got the power to choose between right and wrong. And so often, instead of knowing and exercising our power to choose between right and wrong, we say, if it wasn't for this or for that or for him or for her or for them, I wouldn't be this way. I am so glad that Jesus didn't say that. Look at what he said. When he was hung between the choice to give in or the choice to fold up. Look at what he said in Luke 22 and verse 42. We read these words, faced with that trying moment. He says, Father, if it is your will, meaning remove, take this cup away from me. Did the Father take away the cup? God will not remove the trial. In the moment of the test, here's our response. Jesus established the example. Nevertheless, not my will, together, 
but yours be done. I'll reiterate this only because it needs to be reiterated. The Lord does not remove the temptation. Now, let me make it clear, make it practical. How many of you wish there were not certain temptations in the world? Amen. You could be sitting down, listening to the perfect, watching a family program. And thoughts popped in your head that you wish were not there. Something shows up on the screen you wish wasn't there. And you say, now, why did that have to be? What, what does that have to do with what I'm watching? And the Lord says, at that moment, what choice are you going to make? You're going to sit there and imbibe, or you're going to change your channel or get up and walk away? Say it again, honey. We change the channel. I'm not watching it. I'm not looking at it. I'm not thinking about it. If you don't know your enemy, you're in trouble. Sometimes you're watching a beautiful, innocuous show, and all of a sudden the commercial comes in, and the devil is right there on the screen. Turn it. Turn it off. Get up. Move. Pray. Ask God for help. The Lord said, not my will, but thine be done. But let me show you the benefit of this statement. The benefit of making this decision is powerful for us as Christians. Because as soon as Jesus decided to give his will to his Father, as soon as he decided to submit his will to the Father, as soon as he said, what the Father wants is more important than what my flesh is crying out for, because he was crying out that his flesh did not have to endure the trial before him. Father, remove the cup from me. The Father was not removing the cup. And knowing that, he said, but not my will, thine be done. What happens when we choose to submit our wills to God? Look what happens. Look at verse 43. As soon as we choose to surrender our will to God's will, look what happens. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. Did you know that that would happen the moment you decide to submit your will to God's? When, young folk, older folk, everybody listening, when we decide at that pivotal moment to submit our wills to God, God sends an angel from heaven to give us strength. Can you say amen? We think that we have to battle for the next moment. No, not my will. Yours be done. I'm going to send you reinforcements. That's why the writer of the book of Acts says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. When Peter was sinking, he said, Lord, save me. And immediately God stretched down his hand and prevented Peter from drowning. Let me tell you, my brothers, when you're faced with imaginations and thoughts that are pulling you down, understand the moment you submit to God's will, he sends an angel to strengthen you. But you know what? You got to get past that moment. That's the most pivotal moment in the victory or the failure of your day. And when that strength comes, God brings with it something else. He brings some divine weapons. Here it is. Here it is. Here it is. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 4 and 5. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. But what are they, Shelley? Mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every what? Every thought to the obedience of Christ. Amen. I know you guys are thinking about it really hard. 
I don't know what there is to think about it. That's an amen. Hallelujah. When we submit to God, he, he brings down the thoughts, the imaginations, and he brings them by the aiding influence of his spirit, everything into harmony with the will of God, casting down every imagination and the thoughts that seek to exalt itself above God. So we're not helpless. So now let's end with the four steps of victory. What happens when the thought presents itself? The first thing we need to do is present ourselves to the Lord. It's to do what, church? When the thought presents itself, present yourself to the Lord. That's why Joseph said, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph, at that pivotal moment, said no. He didn't say maybe. Let me think about it. He trained his mind for the battle of the moment. And I can tell you, many of us, if not most of us, have fallen in the moments of greater test because we did not train our minds for the moment that has not yet come. God never intended for righteousness to be just my imagination. He intended it to be my experience. When the thought comes, present yourself to the Lord. The next thing, when we present ourselves, the next thing is, instead of obeying the thought, we decide to obey the word of God. When we obey the word of God, we embrace his righteousness like Eve embraced the fruit of disobedience. And when we embrace the fruit of righteousness, get this part. We cross over from imagination to the manifestation of the presence of God in our lives. God never intended for a righteous life to be just my imagination. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 11. For we who live are always delivered to, to death for Jesus. You know what Paul means? We've got to put those thoughts, we've got to put those imaginations to death for Jesus' sake. And when we do that, look at what is going to happen. We go from imagination to manifestation that the life of Jesus also may be what? Manifested in our mortal flesh. How many of us want the life of Jesus to be manifested in us? And then John, the apostle, reminds us in 1 John 3, 2, we shall be like him, but we shall see him as he is. You want to be like Jesus? Here's the last thing we do. And I want to preface this by saying these words. The world is tired of imaginary Christianity. I see, it on, I see it in the news, the arguments between conservatives and liberals, people swinging the Bible but ain't living the Bible, talking about what we need to do but ain't doing it themselves. The world is tired of imaginary Christians. When we surrender our thoughts and imaginations 
to the will of God, the world will finally see a glimpse of God's imagination for us. Did you grab that? You see, righteousness should not be just our imagination. Righteousness is God's imagination. But only God can take our imagination and turn it into his manifestation. But he'll never do it unless we decide what we're going to do with our thoughts. What are we going to think about? What are we going to focus on? Here's the last scripture, and I want us all to read this together. The key to leaving the past behind, the key to defeating that sin that continues to pop itself up and say to you, you'll never be anything other than what you've done. The key to finding victory at the pivotal moments when the temptation seems too great, God says, what are you going to do with your thoughts right now? And here's what the Apostle Paul tells us by the guiding hand of God that we must all do. Together, finally, brethren, whatsoever things are what? True. Whatsoever things are what? Honest. Whatsoever things are what? Just. Whatsoever things are what? Pure. Whatsoever things are lovely. Whatsoever things are of what? Good report. If there be any virtue and if there be any praise, together what? Think on these things. And you can't think on it if you don't put the if you don't install the hard drive. How much of God's word is in your brain that you think about? If it's just a short verse once a week, or as you're running out of the door, quick prayer, you don't have enough hard drive in there. There's not enough information. So I'm gonna ask you today. Do you want your Christian life to be just your imagination? Do you want victory to be just your imagination? Or do you want victory to be your manifestation? So I'm going to ask you today, and I challenge you tenaciously and passionately, because, brethren, if we are going to be, if we are going to reach out to the community around us, they can't come in here and see imaginary Christianity. They need to see real Christianity. They need to see folk that love each other. Regardless of where we've been, what we've done, we're all, as I've said before, we're all saints under construction. They want to see what God can do for us. And until they see the manifestation of God in us, they'll never desire to have the manifestation of God in their own lives. So would you stand with me so we can pray for that? It's not going to happen because you desire it. It's only going to happen because at the pivotal moments of the challenge, you're going to make the decision that this is the path I must go. No to the thought and the imagination. And yes, submit your will to the molding of the power of God. And then he will manifest his presence in your life. I know it because he did it for me. And I know he's done it for many of you. But we've got to do this intentionally. Don't let it be haphazard. Don't let it be by chance. Let it be by plan. Let it be purposeful. And we will experience the imagination of God in our righteous life. Father in heaven, the world wants to mold our thoughts and our imaginations. 
But God wants us to see what he has always imagined, a purified bride, a church without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. God wants the world to see his imagination, a delivered saint, a forgiven child, a forgiven son or daughter of God. God wants the world to see a fisherman now becoming a preacher. God wants to see a man who doubt become a man who stands on the promises of God. God wants to take the Pharisee and make him a proclaimer of the eternal word of God. He wants to take those who turn their back on him to turn their face towards him. He wants to take the sinner and make them whole and then put them on display for the world to see that, yes, God was able to change this life and to deliver it. So, Lord Jesus, today, as we are challenged by what is taking place in our hearts, help us to take the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts, and may they be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.